You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 89 Immortal Nelson. Thanks for joining me. As always, I'd like to start by thanking our Patreon supporters for making all this possible. Visit patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon if you're interested in helping me keep this thing going. Anyway, we left off last time on the evening of October 21st, 1805. A British fleet under Lord Horatio Nelson had just won a crushing victory over a combined Franco-Spanish fleet near Cadiz in southern Spain. The Battle of Trafalgar was one of the greatest naval victories of all time, but the architect of this triumph would not live to see it memorialized. Lord Nelson went down wounded near the beginning of the battle and died during its final act. As second-in-command to Lord Nelson, Vice Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood had technically been the leader of the fleet for most of the battle, but he wasn't actually informed of this fact until the fighting was almost over. Generally speaking, Collingwood never let his men see a crack in his easygoing, congenial facade, but when he learned of the death of his friend, Collingwood broke down and cried right on deck, where everyone could see him. He would later say, quote, A victory such as this has never been achieved, but at such an expense, in the loss of the most gallant of men and best of friends, as renders it to me a victory I wished never to have witnessed. End quote. The death of Nelson was a serious blow for the British, but aside from that, their losses had been surprisingly light. Out of somewhere around 20,000 sailors, officers, and marines, they had only lost about 500 killed and roughly 1,200 seriously wounded. Many British ships had been badly damaged, but not one had actually been destroyed or taken by the enemy. On the other hand, Allied losses were severe. They had started the battle with around 35,000 men, a much larger number than the British fleet. This was because the combined fleet started the battle with slightly more ships, and French and Spanish vessels tended to be a bit more crowded, because they carried larger complements of marines than their British counterparts. Out of these 35,000 men, around 7,000 were killed or wounded. And those casualties were not shared equally. Some Allied ships didn't even engage and suffered no casualties at all, while others fought nearly to the last man. For example, the French ship Redoutable had suffered 81% casualties. Perhaps as many as 8,000 Allied sailors, officers, and marines had been captured, including their commander, Admiral Pierre-Charles Villeneuve. Over a quarter of the men of the combined fleet were now prisoners or casualties. 
21 French and Spanish ships of the line were captured by the British, plus one more destroyed. In this era, victory on this scale was practically unheard of. Horatio Nelson was almost pathologically optimistic about his operations, but even he had predicted they would only take 20 enemy ships. Before we get into the significance of the battle, we should talk about the aftermath. This was a larger-than-life event. The period after Trafalgar had more excitement and drama than most battles. You might remember that at a key moment of the battle, as the British attack columns were making their final approach, a sudden swell rippled across the still ocean, which helped spoil the Allied gunnery at this key moment. That swell had meant a storm was nearby, and as the battle wound down, it became increasingly clear that that storm was headed towards the British fleet. This placed them in a perilous situation, near shore, far from any friendly port, with bad weather blowing in from the deep ocean. There was a risk that the British ships would be dragged into the shallow waters near the coast, where they might run aground or suffer hull damage and sink. This would be a challenge under the best of circumstances, but after fighting through the greatest naval battle of the age, the British fleet was in absolutely awful shape. Several ships were nearly disabled. All had suffered damage. Every crew was under strength from casualties, and every cockpit was still packed with dozens of wounded. And that was just the British vessels. Collingwood's men also had to deal with the 21 prize ships they had just taken from the enemy, most of which were in even worse shape and had hundreds of captured French or Spanish mariners confined on board. The storm made contact with the fleet at around midnight the night after the battle. Apparently the British ships were hit with such violence that sailors were thrown out of their hammocks as they slept. Many accounts of the storm describe it as a hurricane, and while I don't think it fits the modern definition of the word, that should give you some idea of the magnitude. Even experienced sailors in the fleet said it was the worst storm they had ever encountered. I have read several different accounts of this storm, and many of them make the same point, that it was worse than the battle that preceded it. Depending on how you look at it, Trafalgar had lasted about five hours. The sailors of the British fleet spent four days battling the worst of this storm, and it would be over a week before the weather returned to normal. Almost as soon as the storm hit, the captured French ship Redoutable was in trouble. She had been badly damaged in the battle, and was being towed by the HMS Temeraire, with only a small crew of British sailors on board keeping watch over roughly a hundred prisoners, all that remained of her crew of over six hundred. It quickly became clear the Redoutable would not survive this storm, and the British began to evacuate. To their credit, they freed the prisoners in the hold and began ferrying them over to the HMS Temeraire. But in the middle of a hurricane, this was no easy task. Not everyone was able to get off. As the ship sank below the waves, the men of the HMS Temeraire could hear screams over the sound of the storm. One of them called it, quote, 
the most dreadful scene that could be imagined. End quote. The captured French ship Algeciras was crewed by only around 50 British sailors and officers. She too was badly damaged and became separated from the rest of the fleet as the winds pushed the Algeciras closer and closer to the dangerous shallow water along the Spanish coast. The new British crew began firing off cannons and raised signals trying to call for help, but the storm was so bad and the ship had drifted so far from the rest of the fleet that no help came. The captured French crew knew their ship and understood full well that they were in terrible danger. The surviving French officers began to contemplate drastic action to save themselves and their men. It was becoming clear that the small British crew was incapable of saving the ship, and that no help would arrive in time. The surviving French crew was much larger, knew the vessel, and if the French tricolor flew over the Algeciras, it could safely sail to Cadiz to get away from the storm. The obvious course of action was for the prisoners to rise up, retake the Algeciras, and make sail for Cadiz. However, this was the early 19th century. The French officers had to think of honor as well as necessity. Upon surrendering the ship, all the officers of the Algeciras had given their word to cease fighting and voluntarily enter British custody. Even under these exceptional circumstances, they took that oath very seriously. Fortunately for everyone, someone made a clever legal argument. The surrender was, in effect, a contract, and by failing to come to the aid of the stricken Algeciras, the British had voided that contract. The officers agreed, but decided that it would be dishonorable to simply rise up and seize the ship without warning. So, they sent one of their number to politely inform the senior British officer that they no longer felt bound by the terms of their surrender. Once honor was satisfied, the uprising began. The way things turned out, the British did not resist. I would imagine at least some of them were actually relieved. Becoming a prisoner is a lot better than dying in a hurricane. After an orderly role reversal, the French raised the tricolor and sailed for Cadiz. Everyone on board survived. There were similar prisoner rebellions on several other ships, but the Algeciras was the only case in which it was successful. Every other ship either sank or was retaken by the British. According to some accounts, the British lost more men fighting this storm than they had fighting the French and Spanish. One account describes sailors surviving the sinking of their ship on a makeshift raft, then dying from exhaustion after a week of constant exertion on little food. Back in Cadiz, the battered survivors of the combined fleet limped back to port. As you might imagine, the mood was somber after losing so many friends and comrades. The officers focused on the fleet's immediate needs, emergency repairs on the most damaged ships, and carefully moving the wounded from the cockpits of their ships to the hospitals on shore. There were so many of them that this process took ten days. With Admiral Villeneuve in British custody, command fell to Admiral Federico Gravina one of the heroes of the battle from the Allied perspective, whose quick thinking and expert seamanship 
had saved several French and Spanish ships from capture or destruction. However, Gravina was in even worse shape than his fleet. One of his arms had been shot through by canister fire. Frankly, it was amazing that he had held on to command as long as he did. Once the fleet was safe in Cadiz, Gravina passed his authority to his subordinates. Despite his horrific wound, Gravina held doggedly on to life. He remained weak and bedridden, but was able to write extensive reports on the battle. What remained of his arm was amputated, and then infection set in. Gravina struggled for months, but it eventually became clear that he would lose the battle. According to one source, he said, quote, I am a dying man, but I die happy. I am going, I hope and trust, to join Nelson, perhaps the greatest hero the world has ever produced. End quote. Admiral Gravina finally died on May 9, 1806, six months after Trafalgar. But back to the immediate aftermath of the battle. When Gravina recused himself, command of the combined fleet passed to two men, the French commodore Julien-Marie Cosmao de Cerjulien and the Spanish commander Enrique MacDonnell. That name might sound a bit strange, but there were actually a lot of officers of Irish ancestry in the Spanish military. As they weighed their options, Cosmao and MacDonald decided to attack the British. That might sound insane, given the state of the combined fleet and the ordeal its men had just been through, but they recognized that this storm was a golden opportunity. While the combined fleet was safe in Cadiz making repairs, the British were being pummeled. As they watched the storm from the shore, the French and Spanish officers could guess what kind of chaos was unfolding in the British fleet. With so many badly damaged prizes to manage, it was obvious they would be spread thin. And so, Cosmao and MacDonnell gathered a small force of five of the least damaged ships of the line, plus some smaller French ships that had not taken part in the battle, and waited for a lull in the storm to sail out and challenge the British. As they approached the enemy fleet, the British lookouts mistook those smaller vessels for ships of the line, and the alarm went out that an entire new Franco-Spanish fleet had appeared. Collingwood gave the order for every ship to cut loose any prizes it was towing and form a line of battle. Of course, Cosmao and MacDonnell had no intention of actually engaging the British in another battle with only five damaged ships of the line. They had sailed out in hopes of forcing Collingwood to give up some of his prizes, and they had succeeded. Two fast-moving French frigates were able to swoop in and retake two prizes before the British had time to react. This would have gone down in history as a very brave and clever maneuver by Cosmao and MacDonnell, but before they could return to Cadiz, the storm picked back up, and the little fleet became scattered. Two of its vessels sank, and one was retaken by the British. The Royal Navy scrambled to retake control of their prizes, but in the face of this once-in-a-generation storm, it was beginning to look impossible to actually hold on to so many badly damaged ships. On October 24th, three days after the battle, Admiral Collingwood raised a signal to the fleet, 
prepare to quit and withdraw men from prizes after having destroyed or disabled them, if time permits. End quote. In the end, the British were only able to hold on to four of the prizes taken at Trafalgar, a far cry from the twenty Nelson had been hoping for. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, what are we to make of this great victory? Does Trafalgar deserve its reputation? Looking purely at the battle itself, I would say unreservedly yes. Looking at the strength of the two fleets, the ferocity of the fighting, and the magnitude of the result, I think Trafalgar stands alone among the great naval battles of the 19th century. Others may disagree, but I don't think there was another naval engagement of such significance until the Battle of Tsushima, fought between Russia and Japan almost exactly a century later, in 1905. And if we narrow our focus to European waters, there wasn't anything on this scale until the Battle of Jutland in 1916. But the Battle of Jutland was inconclusive, a draw. If we're looking for another decisive naval battle in European waters, I don't think anything leaps out until the Second World War. So Trafalgar was the great modern naval battle for about a century, or maybe even longer depending on how you look at it. With all that said, there are some elements of the Trafalgar myth that are a bit exaggerated. Nelson's strategy of cutting the enemy line and surrounding their rear was very sound, but not quite as new or revolutionary as he presented it. If you look back at earlier battles in the wars of the French Revolution, and further back through the annals of 18th century European naval warfare, you can see the roots of Nelson's plan. There had been battles fought in a similar fashion before, although it was usually something that happened by accident, not planned in advance. Remember, Admiral Villeneuve had guessed Nelson's strategy. I don't think a battle plan can really count as revolutionary if the enemy admiral sees it coming over a year in advance. But Nelson always liked to take the full share of credit for himself. He claimed this strategy had sprung fully formed from his own mind and many historians have more or less taken him at his word. The impact of the battle is sometimes misunderstood as well. You often see it claimed that Trafalgar totally devastated the French navy, and rendered it incapable of opposing the British for the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. It is true that for the remainder of our story, the French will never mount another serious challenge to British naval supremacy, but that wasn't simply because Nelson had destroyed all their ships. First of all, only a minority of France's ships of the line were actually engaged at Trafalgar. 
The battle was a devastating blow, but around three-quarters of the French navy was totally untouched. After Trafalgar, Napoleon launched a massive shipbuilding program, and within only a few years, every ship that had been lost that day had been replaced with something newer and more modern, and the balance of power between the Royal Navy and the French Navy returned to basically what it had been before the battle. So, by the crudest possible measure of naval power, number of warships, Trafalgar does look a bit overrated. But, hopefully by now, you're all aware that military power is about much more than statistics. Trafalgar was an illustration of just how far the Royal Navy had outclassed all its rivals. This had been a complete victory. Despite holding a numerical advantage, the combined fleet had not managed to destroy or capture a single British vessel. If not for Admiral Gravina's quick thinking and expert sailing, every ship in the combined fleet that was actually engaged might have been captured or sunk. After Trafalgar, the French knew they could not risk another battle on the same scale. As you'll hear in future episodes, the war at sea was far from over. But after Trafalgar, it entered a different phase, one in which the French had mostly given up on the idea of a direct confrontation with the Royal Navy. There are stories about Napoleon's enraged reaction to Trafalgar, but as far as I can tell, the good ones are all apocryphal. In fact, going through Napoleon's letters, it's remarkable how little he mentions it, and when he does, it's usually in passing. As far as I know, he never wrote about the battle in any significant detail. I don't think he ever really grappled with his own responsibility for the disaster. His ill-informed micromanaging and confusing, sometimes contradictory orders had contributed to the defeat. As was often the case in this era, the French government tried to delay announcing the news as long as possible and when they did, did their best to emphasize the heroic performance of the French mariners, and downplay the scale of the defeat. Trafalgar was fought just after the Ulm campaign, in which Napoleon humiliated and captured an Austrian army under the command of the unfortunate General Mach. Mach surrendered on October 19th, and Trafalgar was fought just two days later. So, the news hit France, just as Napoleon was chasing Kutuzov through Austria. The war on land was at a critical juncture, and nobody wanted this disheartening news from Spain to damage the morale of the Grande Armée. The earliest French reports of the battle include a totally ludicrous scene, in which Admiral Villeneuve and the crew of the Busson Tour board the HMS Victory. Villeneuve corners an unarmed Lord Nelson on deck, and chivalrously offers him a sword so they can fight like men, then slays Nelson in single combat. Speaking of Admiral Villeneuve, after only a few months in British captivity, he was returned to France in a prisoner exchange. He almost certainly would have faced an official inquiry for his actions before and during Trafalgar, but he didn't live long enough. Villeneuve died on April 22, 1806. He died under very suspicious circumstances, either murder or suicide. This question has been hotly debated ever since. But for all the ink spilled, 
there is hardly any evidence for either argument. It's widely speculated that Napoleon had him murdered, but that strikes me as a bit out of character. It was totally within Napoleon's power to have him executed through the proper channels. Why do it in secret? The truth will probably never be known. As for Villeneuve's opponent, Lord Nelson, while the men of the British fleet battled the storm, his remains were still on board the HMS Victory. There was no morgue on any naval ship of this era. As a rule, the dead went into the sea. So they were forced to improvise. Nelson's body was preserved in a cask of brandy, which is why, in Royal Navy slang, alcohol is sometimes referred to as Nelson's blood. Contrary to popular legend, the men did not drink this brandy. Not because they respected Nelson too much, but because there was a Royal Marine sentry keeping watch over the cask round the clock to prevent them from doing so. By the time the fleet arrived back in England, a coffin had already been prepared. It was made out of wood salvaged from the Orient, that French ship of the line which had exploded at the climax of the Battle of the Nile, a final memento of one of Nelson's greatest victories. Nelson didn't have any male heirs, and so his noble title passed to his brother, William Nelson, who had followed their father into the Anglican clergy. However, in the wake of Nelson's sacrifice, it was seen fit to grant him an even higher title, Earl of Trafalgar. Nelson had always craved official honors, but it was his brother, who was generally not well regarded, who got to enjoy the fruits of his greatest victory. The news of Trafalgar produced complicated emotions among the people of Britain. There was elation at the scale of the victory, but simultaneously with the celebrations, the country entered a state of mourning. A Russian naval officer was visiting the great British naval base at Portsmouth when news of the battle arrived, and he recorded what he saw. Quote, From early morning, the newspapers were carried through the streets. Sadness and joy mingled on the face of everyone, and everywhere could be heard the exclamation, Immortal Nelson. The ships and fortresses were firing their guns all day, and at night, the town was wonderfully illuminated. The better houses were decorated with transparent pictures. One showed Nelson at the moment when the shot penetrated his chest, and he had fallen into the arms of those surrounding him. Another portrayed Britannia with a sorrowful face, accepting the crown of victory. At night, the streets were crowded. The garrison stood to arms, and the regimental band played the national anthem, Britannia Rule the Waves. End quote. The Times of London gave a slightly different report. Quote, the victory created none of those enthusiastic emotions in the public mind which the success of our naval arms have, in every former instance, produced. There was not a man who did not think that the life of the hero of the Nile was too great a price to pay for the capture and destruction of twenty sail of French and Spanish men of war. No demonstrations of public joy marked this great and important event. The honest and manly feeling of the people appeared as it should have done. They felt an inward satisfaction at the triumph of their favored arms. They mourned with all the sincerity and poignancy of domestic grief their hero slain. End quote. 
As you can see, the Times glossed over reports of public celebrations of the victory, which were probably deemed inappropriate in the light of the loss. Apparently, when Prime Minister William Pitt was informed of the victory, he was so energized that he got up, went to his office, and began his work day, even though it was only three in the morning, and he was already weak and suffering terribly from the illness that would kill him in only a few months. When Lady Emma Hamilton got the news, she screamed and collapsed on the spot. Apparently, she was in a state of shock for roughly ten hours, completely blank, not speaking or even shedding a tear. The battle immediately captured the public imagination. And not without reason. As I hope I demonstrated, it is a very dramatic story. But as it was told and retold, and became fodder for tabloid journalists and pamphleteers, it quickly took on a mythic quality, and some of the facts became garbled or lost. We know that the Battle of Trafalgar came about almost by accident. The immediate cause of the engagement had nothing to do with grand strategy. It was Admiral Villeneuve's desire to forestall his replacement and save his career. We also know that back in the summer, Napoleon had shelved his plans to land the Grande Armée in England. By the time of the battle in late October, Britain was safe from any immediate threat of invasion, and had been for several months. But at the time, these facts were not well understood, especially not by the general public. To them, it felt like the victory at Trafalgar had saved Britain. In the popular understanding of the battle, Nelson was a Christ-like figure who had sacrificed his life to deliver his country from mortal danger. Obviously, the truth is much more complicated, but isn't that always the case? As we've seen time and again in this story, public perception matters, even if it's based on incomplete facts and incorrect assumptions, which it usually is. Of course, not everyone felt this way. Particularly among the ruling elite, there was still widespread disgust at Nelson's personal life. Most were willing to put aside these feelings in light of Nelson's sacrifice, but not all. Admiral John Jervis, Earl of St. Vincent, had been one of Nelson's key mentors and supporters early in his career, but he refused the invitation to attend Nelson's funeral. He did not comment on the matter in public, but remarked in private, quote, The will of Lord Nelson has thrown a shade on the luster of his services. That infernal bitch, Lady H., could have made him poison his wife and stab me, his best friend. End quote. Jervis wasn't alone. Several other admirals and dignitaries refused to attend, although none were as personally close to Nelson as Jervis. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
As soon as the news of Nelson's death reached England, the government began planning a massive funeral. The Great Admiral would be laid to rest in the crypt of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, the seat of the Anglican Archbishop of the city. The country would send him off with full state honors, a privilege that had never before been extended to someone outside the royal family. I find this a bit ironic. This man who saw himself as a crusader for the old order, a defender of traditional hierarchy from the chaos of revolution, wound up being the first commoner to intrude on what had previously been the exclusive privilege of the upper nobility. Translated to today's money, the government spent just over £1.2 million, or $1.5 million, on Nelson's funeral. That might not sound like much, but government expenditures were much lower in this period than they are today. To put it in perspective, a brand new ship of the line cost around £10 million in today's money. So, that was quite a tidy sum. Fittingly, Nelson's body arrived outside the capital by water. So many people showed up just to watch the boat sail up the River Thames that the local authorities had to call out the militia to do crowd control. Then the body lay in state at the Painted Hall in Greenwich, which still exists today. Thousands more came out to pay their respects. Finally, on January 9th, 1806, well over two months after his death, everything was ready for Lord Nelson's funeral. The funeral procession was led by Admiral Sir Peter Parker, who had given Nelson his first command, all the way back in the American War of Independence, nearly three decades earlier. Several members of the royal family had expressed interest in taking this role, probably hoping to add a little of Nelson's popularity to their own. But this had been deemed inappropriate for a mere viscount. The procession included a lot of admirals and captains, some of whom had actually been Nelson's enemies during his life. There were also 48 average sailors taken from the HMS Victory to represent Nelson's bond with his men. His body was carried in a specially built hearse, built to resemble the HMS Victory, and decorated with the symbols of his various ranks and titles, and representations of his victories. According to some historians, at the time, this was the largest public event in the history of the City of London, even surpassing the weddings and coronations of British monarchs. Exact numbers are impossible to come by, but there were certainly hundreds of thousands of people who turned out to say farewell to Lord Nelson. 30,000 soldiers were required for crowd control, an entire army corps' worth of manpower. The inside of St. Paul's Cathedral was decked out with tattered French and Spanish flags, captured in Nelson's victories. Temporary stadium seating was built inside the cathedral, with enough room for 7,000 men. And I do mean men. No women were invited to the ceremony. Nelson was a warrior, and war was seen as the exclusive province of men but apparently a large number of upper-class women were able to sneak into the galleries. After all, this was the event of the century. 
Francis Nelson, Horatio's estranged wife, was present for the procession on one of the carriages, but the curtains were drawn, so she was not visible to the public. Lady Emma Hamilton, Nelson's great love, was not involved at all, nor was his four-year-old daughter, Horatia. After the funeral service, specially built machinery lowered the casket into an elegant black marble sarcophagus waiting in the crypt below. This sarcophagus was actually a centuries-old artifact. It had been crafted for another great figure of British history, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, the powerful and controversial right-hand man of King Henry VIII. Wolsey had fallen out of favor before his death, and so he was denied the opulent statesman's burial he had planned for himself, and so the sarcophagus had gone unused. It had been property of the government for over 250 years, so at the time of the funeral, it was older than the funeral itself is today. Nelson's close friend and professional successor, Admiral Cuthbert Collingwood, would die five years later from cancer, and he too was buried at St. Paul's, finally reunited with his old friend, and there they remain to this day. After Nelson was finally laid to rest, the regalia of his various titles and ranks were broken and thrown in after him. The final touch was the battle flag, flown by the HMS Victory at Trafalgar, which those 48 sailors from the Victory were supposed to fold up and drop into the crypt. Instead, with 7,000 of the most eminent people in Britain watching, they tore off pieces of the flag to take as souvenirs. Many genteel Britons were horrified by this, but I have to admit I like the idea of these sailors taking a little piece of Nelson's memory for themselves. He belonged more to his sailors than to these high dignitaries and government officials who were using his legacy for their own purposes. Amazingly, some members of the British press had the gall to give bad reviews to the ceremony like it was some play or opera rather than the funeral of a national icon. The Morning Herald called the lowering of the coffin into the crypt a, quote, stage trick, end quote. Others criticized the music. Apparently the symphony wasn't big enough. There were murmurs from some quarters that Nelson's legacy was being cynically appropriated by a government desperate to put a positive spin on the war effort. There probably was some truth to this. At the time of the funeral, the news of the terrible coalition defeat at Austerlitz had just reached Britain. The government had an obvious incentive to change the conversation around the war. And what better way to do that than with a stirring display of patriotism at the funeral of a great war hero? Still, I'm not sure Nelson would have objected. In fact, he probably would have approved. He really believed in this war, and while he was alive, he had been happy to let the government borrow his public image when asked. Long after death, Nelson remained a ubiquitous figure in Britain. Books and pamphlets about his life became bestsellers. Plays, operas, poems, and musical tributes were popular as well. Nelson's face appeared on advertisements and logos for all kinds of products. 
People bought crockery decorated with vignettes of his life. Celebrity culture as we know it did not exist. This is what people had instead. Nelson was probably the most recognizable person in Britain, after the king, and the king had a bit of an unfair advantage because his face appeared on money. Some of this was due to the government's propaganda efforts, or cynical people trying to cash in on the man of the moment. But from what we can tell, Nelson's death really did have a huge cultural impact. According to one source, it became quite fashionable for middle and upper class young men to show off their patriotism by bragging about how despondent and depressed they were over the great man's death. The anniversary of Trafalgar became a public holiday in Britain and her empire during the 19th century. It has declined quite a bit with the passage of time, but is still observed today by the Royal Navy. In 1811, just before the Battle of Lissa, the British commander, Captain William Host, raised his final signal to the squadron, quote, Remember Nelson, end quote. Apparently it worked, because his men were able to defeat a much larger Franco-Italian force. This is Nelson's greatest legacy, far more enduring than any pamphlet or pantomime. The institution that produced Nelson, the Royal Navy, was now in its golden age, and Nelson became one of the central elements of its official ideology. He was held up as the ideal officer, who embodied all the qualities the Navy sought to instill in its men. As it dominated the seas all around the world throughout the 19th century, the Royal Navy wanted its officers to ask themselves, what would Nelson do? In our first episode on Horatio Nelson, I talked about the fact that Nelson the symbol and Nelson the national hero almost totally eclipse Nelson the man. This is how it happened. When someone is held up as an icon of patriotism, a national savior, and a paragon of martial virtue, there simply isn't room for them to be remembered as a flawed human being. But I don't think Nelson would have had it any other way. He revered Britain and the Royal Navy. He probably would have been proud to have remained useful to them so long after the end of his life. But there is one aspect of his legacy that I think would have angered Nelson. We know that before the battle, as he contemplated the possibility of death in combat, he was preoccupied with the question of what would become of Lady Hamilton and his daughter Horatia. You might recall that he wrote a new codicil to his will only a few days before the battle, and that on his deathbed, he made Captain Hardy promise to take care of his family. Frankly, I think these worries about Emma and Horatia were the only things that held Nelson back from truly welcoming death. He knew that his unconventional relationship could never be fully accepted as long as he was alive, but he probably hoped that the magnitude of his victory and the gratitude won from his self-sacrifice would change people's minds, or at least shame them into abiding by his wishes. With this outpouring of love and gratitude for Nelson, you would think such a simple and understandable request would have been honored. After all, Nelson had served Britain faithfully and well for his whole life, but. British society said no. 
Individual people were kind to Lady Hamilton, and helped her in the name of Nelson's memory, but, generally speaking, she was a pariah. Emma didn't come away totally empty-handed. She received nearly a quarter million dollars in today's money from Nelson's estate, as well as the deed to their house, Merton. But that type of money didn't go very far with her lavish lifestyle and tendency to give away money to needy family members and con artists. She was also entitled to a pension of over $50,000 a year in today's money, but Nelson's main beneficiary, his brother William, refused to pay it. Emma was widely seen as a kind of Jezebel, who had used her sexuality to lead a great man astray. This made her very inconvenient for the growing Nelson myth, a walking, talking reminder that this saintly national icon was a flawed person with human desires. Of course, that was simply the truth, but no one in Britain wanted to hear it. The very cream of high society still showed up to Emma's parties including the crown prince himself, but no one was willing to help her financially. She was falling deeper and deeper into debt. In desperation, she tried to sell Merton, but could not find a buyer. By 1812, Emma was in debtor's prison, although she and Horatia were allowed to live relatively comfortably in apartments outside the facility. Seeing no way to get out from under all her debts, Emma and Horatia fled to France, of all places, where she lived an unhappy life, drinking too much and relying on opium to get through the lonely days. She died in Calais in 1815, aged just 49. Horatio Nelson would have been heartbroken, and I think quite angry, if he knew what became of his great love. After Emma's death, Horatia went to live with relatives. She was widely acknowledged as Nelson's daughter. After all, with that name and the scandal of her parents' relationship, who could deny it? Despite her tragic origins, Horatia seems to have led a normal life, and actually did quite well for herself. She had a good marriage to an Anglican clergyman, and had ten children, the first of whom was named after her famous father. The family lived in Norfolk, and was perfectly respectable and well-regarded within their community, although they were still cut off from Nelson's estate and struggled with money. Horatia died in 1881, at the age of 80. Nelson's wife, Frances, fared much better than Lady Hamilton. She suffered from poor health in her later years, but other than that, lived quite happily, surrounded by family. Thanks to her estranged husband's estate, she was quite comfortable. Amazingly, in spite of everything, she remained devoted to Nelson's memory. Her son, Josiah Nisbet, felt differently. He had grown to hate his stepfather, the man whose life he had saved at the Battle of Tenerife. Nisbet did eventually rise to the rank of captain, in part thanks to his hated stepfather's influence but he proved very unpopular both with the men and his fellow officers. There were also whispers of incompetence and misconduct related to drinking. He retired from the Navy early and settled in Devon, where he entered the business world, 
and was very successful. Nisbet always avoided talking about his stepfather in public, but in private made no secret of how much he loathed him, primarily for his shabby treatment of his wife and the very public nature of his relationship with Lady Hamilton. Josiah Nisbet died in 1830. So, what are we to make of Lord Horatio Nelson? I think we've spent more time with him on this show than any other single personality other than Napoleon himself, with the possible exception of Toussaint Louverture. Hopefully by now you have some idea of the real person behind the legend. In Nelson's case, the legend is not totally misleading. He really was a British patriot. He devoted his life to service, and to the very last, truly believed he was fighting in a just and holy cause against the forces of evil. You might criticize that as simplistic, but there's no question that Nelson sincerely believed it. And he really was an exemplary Royal Navy officer. The Royal Navy was an incredibly dynamic and effective institution at this time. There was no shortage of good officers, but Nelson was certainly the best of a very talented and well-trained generation of mariners. I think the Royal Navy was very wise to hold him up as an example for subsequent generations. He could be harsh, but he was generally well-liked by his sailors, and for good reason. He took good care of them, by the standards of the time. Many officers of this era had reputations for neglect or even cruelty, but Nelson was not one of them. His money problems, hunger for glory, and political ineptitude made him several enemies among his fellow officers and the naval leadership, but generally speaking, he enjoyed the respect and affection of his peers as well. What strikes me most about Nelson is his irrepressible drive. Shortly after he left England to fight in the War of the First Coalition, when he was still a relatively anonymous junior captain, he had written a letter to his wife in which he said that he planned to, quote, do much or be ruined, end quote. That was the attitude Nelson took towards basically everything. He identified his objective and pursued it relentlessly, often without regard to risk. In fact, I think the risk was actually part of the appeal. This impulse pushed him to achieve astonishing things in combat, things less audacious commanders probably would have considered impossible. But it could be a double-edged sword. Nelson's judgment was not perfect, and he sometimes took unnecessary risks or pursued objectives that really were impossible. I think this all-or-nothing attitude could also make him uncompromising and antagonistic in his personal relationships. For a man who loved the Royal Navy, he had a remarkable number of enemies within the institution. I think Nelson's insatiable appetite for glory comes from this impulse as well. This was not the most attractive side of his personality. Most people have a desire to be recognized for their contributions. But for Nelson, this became a form of vanity, and it sometimes led him to dishonest and unseemly behavior. Nelson really was pretty hopeless at life on land. It is perhaps good for his reputation that he died young, because if he had survived, 
he might have tarnished his legacy after retirement. He had always dreamed of pursuing politics, but had a very simplistic understanding of public affairs, and had not appeared competent during his brief forays into the political world. Politics requires subtlety and flexibility, a soft touch, and this was not how Nelson operated. You can easily imagine a post-retirement Nelson embarrassing himself in the halls of Parliament. Above everything else, Nelson was a Navy man. Remember, he had joined the service at just 13 years of age. The life of an 18th century midshipman was hard, and I think it shaped his whole character. We've talked in past episodes about the way the French army shaped Napoleon in a similar manner. I don't think either man can really be separated from the institution that produced him. Many of Nelson's contemporaries saw something sinister in his relationship with Lady Hamilton. Personally, I think that's more a reflection of prudish Georgian morality than of Nelson and Emma's behavior. From what I can tell, they really were in love, and really did understand each other on a profound level. That said, Nelson could have chosen a better way to pursue this relationship, or declined to pursue it at all. He didn't have to abandon his family so abruptly, and he could have been a lot more discreet. On his wedding day, he had sworn to love and protect his wife. Not only did he leave her, she was embarrassed in front of the entire world, and, from what we can tell, personally hurt. Obviously, this hurt a lot of people close to Nelson. But not only that, it tarnished his cherished reputation, and the reputation of his beloved Royal Navy. But with all that said, I don't think his faults detract from his genius. Over 200 years after his death, he still stands out as one of the greatest naval commanders of all time. I will always think of him lying mortally wounded in the cockpit of the HMS Victory, feeling his destiny dragging him towards the type of glorious self-sacrifice he had always dreamed of, but also feeling his love for Lady Emma and Horatia binding him to the earth. I wonder how many other people who died in the Napoleonic Wars felt that same tension in their final moments. As we close the book on Lord Nelson, I think we should let Lady Emma have the last word. After all, she probably knew him better than anyone. She was convinced he had greeted death with a smile. By the time she received his last letter, written just before the battle, she already knew he was dead. After reading it, she wrote in the margins, quote, O miserable, wretched Emma! O glorious and happy Nelson! End quote. That's all for now. As always, thanks for listening.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.